Would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? Oh God, we resonate with the words of that song. You are great. You alone are great. There is no God besides you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one God. We praise you this morning, God, that you alone reign, that you are unelected, that you are the sovereign Lord by virtue of your holiness and your power and greatness. And Lord, in a world where we so often are cynical about our leaders, about institutions, about judges and governors and leaders, Lord, we thank you that you are the God who inspires our utmost confidence, that you are a God of pure integrity and goodness, that as the Bible says, your throne is established on righteousness and justice, that those are the foundations of your rule over us. And so, Lord, we, we just rest knowing that, that when our, things in our lives seem to be spinning out of control, when the world seems to be uh, flying apart at, at the seams, Lord, we know that you are reigning and that you have good purposes and that even though we don't understand it all the time, Lord, that you will bring all things together for our good and for your glory that in the end, injustice and evil will be forever vanquished, and that in the end, righteousness and goodness will prevail. And Lord, we know that none of us can stand righteous before You outside of Jesus. And so we thank You this morning for Jesus, through whom we can come into Your presence, through whom we can say that we love You and that we are Your children. And so, Lord, we love You this morning, and we pray that You would open our eyes to see Jesus, that You'd open our eyes to see Your greatness. God, that You would just... uh, Peel away all the junk that fills up our lives and our hearts during the week. All the things we worry about and all the things we think are important. Help us to see the glory of Jesus, that He alone is our treasure. And so, Lord, we pray as a church that we would be a church that treasures Jesus Christ, that treasures the Bible and that truly loves one another. God, we want to pray for our missionary of the week this week in the bulletin. We pray for Dick and Virginia Camp who are We've been our missionaries for a long time. Dick used to be the pastor of this church. And Lord, now is uh, with the uh, national ministry of the National Parks, Lord. And we pray that each summer, this summer, as they prepare to send out ministers to all the national parks all over the country, that the gospel would go forward in those places. God, thank you for the Christmas Eve outreach we had here. And thank you for the, the thousand or so people who came through the doors. Lord, we just pray that that any seeds that were planted that day would continue to germinate and bear fruit in the hearts of people. Lord, we pray for the families in this church. God, I pray specifically this morning for marriages in our church. Lord, would you help husbands and wives to love each other? God, uh, would you help husbands to be sacrificially devoted to their wives, to love them as Christ loved the church, to honor their wives? as Christ honored the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy. And Lord, I pray for wives that they would respect their husbands, that they would, that they would not buy into this lie that, that they have to be independent to be significant, Lord, but that they might enjoy and delight in the, the, the role of, of, of honoring their husbands and following their leadership. Lord, may our, may our families, our husband and wife relationships, look like the beauty between Jesus and the church. God, I pray for couples in this church that are struggling through issues right now, that You would help them. God, that they would open up their lives to reach out to others because, Lord, pretty much everybody here has been through struggles in their marriages. And, Lord, may we just be honest about that and not try to endure difficulties alone. God, we pray for the uh, junior high kids who are off at the, the winter weekend. 
Lord, we pray that You would speak to their hearts, that You would reach out and touch them, God. Lord, we pray for a generation of junior high and high school students who love You. Lord, protect our students from all of the allures and temptations that are put before kids today. Protect them, Lord, from drugs, from alcohol, from materialism, from sexual promiscuity. Lord, help them to see that it is so much more important to love You than to be cool. And so, God, I pray that You would speak to their hearts too. Lord, give our college students safe travels as they go back to school. Lord, be with our hurting and sick members this morning. We pray that You would raise up Jalmer Nelson to full health. That You would heal and raise up Orville Lim. Lord, that You would strengthen Peggy Carlson. And God, others that I'm not even aware of that You know. You know every situation. I pray for everyone who's sick and discouraged, depressed this morning, that You might minister to our church. And now, Lord, as we open up the Bible, we just pray You'd speak to us again. Ah, it's so great to open the Bible, Lord. It's like Christmas morning every week. What are You going to give, Lord? What are You going to show to us through Your Word? And so, Lord, speak to us now. We're Your people and we want to hear from You because You're our God and we love You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we invite any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. And we'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter uh, 18. There's no kids' choir today. So if you're a kid like age, you know, third grade and up, uh, our choir director is ill. So next week, it's locked, he says. Push. Throw your shoulder into it, man. All right. Locked. All right. Uh, Luke chapter 18. We're studying verses 9 to 14. This is a great story today. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Let me just read the story. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, Christianity can be a really overwhelming kind of thing. The church can be an overwhelming place if you're new to it. And that's important for us to remember, especially for those of us maybe who've been Christians for a long time, or maybe you've come to this church for many years, and so you know where everything is. And when you walk in this church, you feel like you're home. But it's always important to remember that that's not how everyone feels when they first either are coming into the faith or maybe they've been away for a long time or are coming from another faith. In, you know, when you walk in for the first time, you're like, what's going on here? 
Why are they singing all these songs? And, and you know, why are those people raising their hands when they're singing? Are they asking a question? You know, someone going to call on them? And you know, why isn't the priest wearing a robe? And you know, it's all these like wh- what's happening? And, and what does it mean to be a Baptist church? And how is that different from Catholic or Presbyterian? And and you know, we say, oh, don't worry about all that. Just read the Bible. People are like, okay, I'll read the Bible. And wow, that's about two inches. You know. Uh, just read this, and then you start reading it, and it's all these faraway places and strange things. And, and so it's, you know, it can be very overwhelming. And it's not that people are unintelligent. It's just a lot to sift through. And as you're sifting through it, you're trying to figure out what's important in all of this, what's central. And that, that's a really hard task. And so I really appreciate stories like this one that we're studying this morning because this is one of those stories in the Bible that just kind of like gets down to the root issues of Christianity. You know, the whole Bible, we, we believe, is the Word of God. We believe all of the Bible teaches us about God. But, you know, there's some passages in the Bible in particular. There's some stories in the Bible in particular that for some reason just make the core issues so clear and easy to understand. And this is one of those great passages that that just cuts through all of the fog and gets right down to the nub of the issue. And you know, the great issue that that the Christian Gospel addresses, the great issue we face is this. Here's the issue. How can we be right with God? That's the issue. How can we as sinful human beings, people who don't keep God's laws the way we should, how can we relate to a holy, perfect Creator God? How can we, who have all of our hang-ups and our issues and our dysfunctions and our skeletons in our closet and all of our questions and doubts, how do we relate to the perfect, holy God of the universe who made us? How can that happen? Uh, If there is a God, may I suggest that that is the most important question that any human being can ask, if there is a God. I I can't think of a more important issue that we have to wrestle with. You know, that's the purpose of life kind of issue. And what I love about this passage is it gets right down to that issue and addresses it. And so here Jesus, this is why he's such a master teacher, he's dealing with like the biggest issues of the universe and he can deal with them in a simple little story. That's how what a good teacher he was. And Jesus addresses this issue and he tells this simple little, even Jeremy can understand it, story about these two characters, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And as you probably already picked up just from reading it, the Pharisee and the tax collector represent two approaches to God. Two ways that people seek to connect with God or be right with God or know God. You notice there's these two guys, they're going to the temple to pray. So they're literally approaching God in a sense. And they come at God from very different angles. And each of these these characters represent two ways that human beings approach God. In fact, I would maybe even argue that they represent the two ways that people can approach God. That in a sense, if you really boil down all the different philosophies and religions and ideas, you know, they come from one of these two impulses that we're going to study this morning. Uh, And so, let's look at these these two characters. The first one is the Pharisee. And if I could uh, describe the Pharisee, I, I would like to call the way he's approaching God the way of merit. The way of merit. In other words, he's approaching God on the basis of merit, on the basis of self-justification. 
hey, look, God, at either who I am or what I've done or what my pedigree is or what my background is. The way of merit comes with something in its hand, uh, something on its resume to show to God. Uh, it, it says here, verse um, 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, just remember who the Pharisees were, by the way. Uh, you probably know, but they were the religious experts of their day, right? The Pharisees were the guy who made it their mission in life to keep the rules, not only of the Old Testament, but even the rules of the rabbis who extrapolated from the Old Testament. They were all about keeping the rules. And so it, it, they kind of exemplified the way of merit. Hey, God, look at me. Look what I've done. Look how well I've done it. And therefore, God, uh, I, I should be right with you because I've done things the way you wanted me to do them. It's that kind of approach. <clears throat> and, and so look at him. Let's just take a closer look. Verse 11. Notice his posture. It says the Pharisee stood up. So he goes into the temple to pray and he kind of walks out into the middle of the crowd. <laughs> Stands up, and this is how they prayed back then. You know, we pray kind of like this, but the sort of standard way to pray then was you'd lift your hands and you'd look up to heaven. And so you can just see him there, the wind blowing and, you know, his robes. And, oh God, you know, he's standing up very boldly and confidently. And look at his prayer. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, I'm really fascinated with that prayer. Before we just dismiss it and we say, oh yeah, what a blowhard. I mean, let's really think about his prayer. Let's think about it. Uh, because at one level, as I was thinking about his prayer, at one level, it's a good prayer. Like, you know, from a certain perspective, like, wouldn't you want to be able to say those things about yourself? I mean, at one level, the things he's done are good. Right? He says, I'm not a robber. Well, isn't that good? I mean, God doesn't want us to rob. God doesn't want us to sneak money from our parents' wallets. God doesn't want us to you know, cheat on our income taxes. You know, robbery is bad. So it's like, he's not a robber. Isn't that good? He's not an evildoer. Well, that's good. It's, it's bad to do evil. It's evil to do evil. So, you know, um, or, or look at this. He's not an adulterer. Isn't that good? I mean, should, wouldn't you be proud if you could live your whole life and say, I've never, I've been totally faithful to my spouse, that my heart has been faithful, my eyes have not wandered, I'm, I don't have that adulterous uh, sin on my conscience? That's a good thing. He says, I'm not that. I'm not a tax collector, which is good because the tax collectors were crooks in Jesus' day. Not only that, he says, I fast twice a week. Now, in Jesus' day, the Jews uh, had certain fast days during the year where the, the whole Jewish community would come together to fast. In other words, they'd go without food and water for a day, or without food. But the Pharisees were so religious, they fasted not just on the prescribed fast days, they would fast twice a week, uh, typically Mondays and Thursdays. They'd get together and they would fast. They would not eat those days, and they would spend that time in focused uh, devotion to God. Isn't that good? Or he says, look, I give a tenth of all I get. I mean, the Pharisees were so religious. Not only did they give a tenth of their income to the work of God and to the poor, but if they bought something, they would tithe that. So if they bought spices, they would give the tenth of the spices. You know, they'd figure it out. Okay, and I'll give this piece. And they would give that to the poor. I mean, can you say, I give a tenth of everything I get to God? I mean, that's pretty amazing, really, for someone to be that generous 
with their finances that they would want to love God and care for the poor so much, they give a tenth. So, you know, at one level, like you look at his prayer and he's not saying anything wrong. He's not saying that he does evil. He's showing that he's doing the right things. But if you look at it at another level, you see that it's all wrong, right? If you read between the lines and look at his attitude and his heart, because God doesn't just look at our actions. He looks at the motivations behind our actions. God sees right through me. He has x-ray vision. I can't hide anything from Him. I could hide tons of stuff from you. I could put on a great front for you, but God just sees right through it. He knows why I do what I do. He sees my motives. And even you know, my secret motives that I'm not even fully aware of because I'm so used to operating in them, He sees all of that. And when you look at this guy's heart, you see that's where the problem is. It's what's motivating his righteousness before God. And and what is it? Well, it's the way of merit. It's this idea that I'm coming to God with my righteousness and something that I have to offer God, and therefore God should respond a certain way to me. Remember what it says in verse 9? Look back at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. That's the way of merit. My confidence is in me and in what I am or do or, or whatever. That's the way of merit. And that's where the problem lies. Look at his prayer. He says, God, I thank you. So it starts off like a Thanksgiving prayer. Like, oh, he's going to pray a prayer of Thanksgiving. And what do you usually do in a prayer of Thanksgiving? You thank God for what God has done. <laughs> you know, God, thank you for giving me my family or thank you for giving me health or whatever you're thanking God for. But he, so he starts off, God, I thank you. And then he just launches into a list of what he has done. So it's like a thank you prayer about himself under the guise of a thank you prayer about God. There's the spirit of the way of merit. And not only does it make us confident uh, and self-righteous before God, it also makes us condescending toward others. Like, look at those people. And I believe that the way of merit is the default mode of all human beings. It's... It's the way we all approach God, religion, spirituality, morality, whatever it is. We don't, we don't have to try. It's just like instinctive. This is where if you just let people go, we go right to the way of merit. It, it, it's like we have bad alignment in our car. You take the hands off the steering wheel, right in the ditch. The way of merit. It's just how we operate. And the Pharisees did not invent this. Uh, the Pharisees are simply the most blatant examples of it in the time of Christ. But it's in our hearts. It's in our hearts today. People today still are self-righteous about religion. If you're religious and, and you start getting into religious things, it's so tempting to start, you know, wow, look at me. I'm in church again. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, and I could have slept in. And while some of the people I know are sleeping it off today, I'm awake. I'm alert. I'm in church. You know, look at me. It's pretty amazing. I, I give to the church regularly. I give my time to the church. You know, I pray and read my Bible on a very regular basis. I have what we call in you know, evangelical speak a regular quiet time, which means I regularly go into a quiet place and read and pray, and, which is good, right? All that's good. The problem is I'm not good. And so I take good things that I should be doing and I start doing them. And, and you know, after a week of reading my Bible consistently, I'm like, ha, 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 check me out, right? You know, it's so tempting. 
And, and this is especially true. Some of you here are, are coming into this church, you're coming into Christianity because you're trying to escape the dark side. Some of you have been in the dark side. I mean, you've been in it. You know uh, addiction, you know substance abuse, you know gambling and wasting money, and you know promiscuity, and you know swearing and vulgarity, and you've been in that whole cesspool that it's so easy to get into, and you're climbing out of it. And you're here because you're climbing out of it, which is good. But I'll tell you, be careful. It's not going to take very long of you being here before you're like, well, you know, all my old party friends, they don't get it. No, I pulled it together. <laughs> What's wrong with them? It's just so easy. It comes instinctively to us. And oh, there is nothing more disgusting and gross than a self-righteous, smug Christian. Ugh. <laughs> I gag myself out when, when I become so self It's like, ah, oh, Jeremy, were you really that smug? When I catch myself being like that, it's so easy to do. It's, it's so repulsive. But you know, it's not just a problem for people who are Christians or who go to church. As I said, this is the human condition. And even if you, you're not into organized religion, the way of merit is still operant within your soul because that's what we all do. It's natural to us. You know, it's kind of in vogue today not to be into organized religion. You, you talk to people about this. They're like, you know, I'm not really religious. I'm not really into organized religion. But what do they say? But I'm spiritual, right? I'm very spiritual, even though I'm not into organized religion. And it's like, okay. And, and, but, you know, it's almost like said with a self-righteousness. Like, you know, some of those, you know, unenlightened, benighted people, they're into religion. But I've transcended that. I'm spiritual. And maybe someday you won't need religion. You'll be spiritual too. And it's just the way of merit again. It's this, you know, the chameleon's just changed his color, that's all. But it's still the chameleon. It's still the way of merit. You know, you can be self-righteous about meditation. You can be self-righteous about crystals. Uh, you can be self-righteous about your New Age beliefs. And look down on others. You know, you can even follow the way of merit if you don't even believe in God. Or you're an agnostic. Or you're secular. Because even people who are secular and have no faith whatsoever have a moral code. Granted, they develop it themselves and they kind of, you know, hobble it together on their own, cobble it together. But, you know, even atheists have a moral code. And when I talk to them and argue with them, they get very indignant and self-righteous about things. Right? And they adopt some other morality. You know, maybe their morality is environmentalism. And you know, is caring for the environment good? Of course it's good. You can even make some arguments for it from the Scripture that we're stewards of God's creation. But you can turn it into a self-righteous religion even if you don't believe in God. It's like I drive a hybrid. And I only use recycled products. And I only eat organic food. And I would never shop at Walmart or other big stores. You know, it's like you can get like that. And there's people who are... You know, there are some very, very preachy vegetarians. Right? And some very fundamentalistic, holistic method people. Right? It's just the same thing. It's just another methodology. I remember I was talking to this guy um, as several years back so when I first got my house, bought my house, and he came over to do some stuff with our sprinkler system when I was still trying to figure it out. And Anyway, uh, I was talking to the guy. He was very chatty and he was just having a good conversation. And so he's like, you know, what do you do for a living? And so I told him I was a pastor. And he was like, oh, yeah, and my family's really religious, but it's not for me. I'm not into it. You know, he's just kind of a hard, I'm just a hardworking guy making a living. I'm not, I don't worry about all that stuff. But then he, like, after a while, he kind of got on this tangent. 
where he just started a rant, really, about how disgusted he is that all the other contractors and landscapers and tradesmen cut corners and how everybody does that and how he doesn't. And it just bothers him that everybody uses materials that they shouldn't use or doesn't do things to code. And, you know, he he just started preaching. It was a self-righteous rant about his work ethic. It's just the way of merit again. It's just the way of merit all over. It's another manifestation. So you don't even have to believe in God to have this kind of bent towards self-justification, or as it says in verse 9, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. It's what we do as human beings. It doesn't matter what your religion or background or your Islamic or Christian or, or New Age or nothing. It's in us. And you know, if you peel it away and you keep getting down to the root of it, I think there's something at the base of it all. I think at the root of it is self-deification. If I could put it that way. It's self-salvation. It's what that snake said to Eve so long ago. If you eat this fruit, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And what I think the snake was saying to Eve was, by knowing good and evil, I think that what that means is uh, discerning or, or choosing, determining for yourself what is right and what is wrong. You can set up your own system and therefore validate yourself by virtue of whatever your own beliefs and morality are. And so the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, in what ways are we like this Pharisee? What are the things that you look to and I look to to feel confident before God or in our spirituality or in our morality if you don't even believe in God? You know, what are the things that you instinctively look to and say, hmm, look at that, look at me, look at this? We all have those things. And what does Jesus say about the way of merit? He says at the end of verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled because the heart is wrong. Even if some of the outward actions here and there are okay, the heart is wrong because the heart comes to God boasting and self-righteous and not trusting God to be the Savior. It's I'm the Savior because look at what I've done. But there is another way. There's another approach to God. And uh, it's the way exemplified by the tax collector. The way of merit is a wide way. It's a broad highway, multi-lanes. Lots of people use it. But the other way is very narrow. It's very difficult to find and difficult to travel. And not many people go that way. And I will call the second way the way of mercy. There's the way of merit, and then there's the way of mercy. And it's the tax collector. Look at verse 13. We have the tax collector here. Oh, before we look at the verse, remember who tax collectors were, right? Pharisees, the holy roller, rule keepers of their day. Tax collectors were kind of universally recognized as bad people. They were cheats. They stole money. They abused the uh, economic system to their advantage. The Jews considered them traitors, uh, to the, uh, siding with the Romans. In fact, there was a phrase. We've seen it in Luke. Tax collectors and sinners. Right, So if you want to talk about sinners, bad people who don't keep God's laws, then you, you start off by saying tax collectors and sinners. In other words, tax collectors were so nefarious, they're so notorious, that they were singled out as the ultimate example of a sinner. Like tax collectors and the rest of those sinners. So these people, they were hated universally by the Jews. We, we just find such a, a loathing for them. Uh, the Jews would have probably run them out of town if it weren't for the fact that the tax collectors 
had the backing of the Roman government. And so here's this tax collector. So when you think Pharisee and tax collector, you've got to put it in modern terms. You've got to think like, like you know, the pastor and the crack dealer, right? Or the, the Boy Scout and the bully or something. You've got to think really polar opposites. But notice that this person, the last person who deserves to approach God, comes into God's presence and he comes at him by the way of mercy. Look at his posture. Verse 13, the tax collector stood at a distance. He doesn't go in the center of the crowd. He's off in the sides. He's in the corners. He's humble. He's meek. He did not even look up to heaven. He's so ashamed of who he is and the way he has lived his life that even when he's in praying to God, he's not doing the typical posture. He's, and he's kind of looking down. It's like when your kids, you know, you catch them doing something wrong. And they just, you know, they kind of look at you and they're like, what did you do? And they, they answer you, but they're not looking at you because they're so ashamed. They know that they're busted and they don't want to look at you. And you have to say, look at me. And then they look at you and you know, it's like your face is like the sun and they're kind of squinting. and like, oh. um, that's how he is. He's, he's like, oh, I can't even look at God. I'm so ashamed. But not only is he ashamed, he's grieving. You see that he beats his breast. You, you, maybe you've seen pictures in Middle Eastern countries today. Uh, you know, that, that's a common way of grieving is there's a lot of, you know, hitting yourself in motion. It's very expressive. It's a very physical kind of grieving. Uh, maybe we have something to learn from that. Maybe it's cathartic. You know, there's, there's this beating of the breast when someone is grieving. He's so distraught at how much his life is the opposite of what God wants that he's, he's so broken over it. And look what he says. He says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. He just pleads for mercy. He doesn't come with his, look what I did and I do this and that. He's just like, look, I'm a sinner. Give me mercy. Now, what's mercy? That's an important word here. You, you know what mercy is, but we just need to kind of put it out on the table. You know, what is mercy? Mercy is when I show kindness to somebody who doesn't deserve the kindness and, in fact, deserves the opposite of kindness. Uh, mercy is when you take somebody who deserves punishment or um, scorn or rejection, and instead you give them forgiveness or praise or acceptance. And it's like, wow, I can't believe you did that. You're merciful. <laughs> you know, it, it's like if I get pulled over and, and the cops says, you know, well, you were speeding. And I'm like, yep, I'm totally busted. I was speeding. But would you have mercy on me? <laughs> right? I'm not saying, oh, well, you know, officer, I'm, I'm generally a good driver and look, my car is clean and my inspection sticker's up to date, you know, trying to plead the way of merit. I just come to him and say, you got me. I'm busted. Would you have mercy on me? I totally don't deserve it. I deserve for you to write up a ticket and jack up my insurance rates, but instead I'm pleading for mercy. You know, hypothetically, that's what I would do. Um, <laughs> mercy, mercy comes to God. You know, merit comes to God with something in its hands. Show and tell time. Show and tell what I did for God. Mercy comes to God with empty hands. I have nothing. Not only just empty hands, but filthy empty hands. Not only do, do I not have anything, but my hands shouldn't even have anything in them because they're so dirty. My hands are dirty. The way I've used my body is dirty. Lord, my speech is unclean. The things that have come out of my mouth are, you know, my mouth is dirty. Like Isaiah needs his lip cleansed by that coal. Uh, from Isaiah chapter 6. Lord, my mind is, is filthy. The things I've thought are just not pleasing to You. My heart is dirty. And so it's coming to God with a sense of our sinfulness. 
The Pharisee is dirty too. The difference is he just doesn't see it because he's pointing to the 5, 10, 15, or 20 rules that he has singled out as the ones to keep. But he doesn't see that his heart is in the same condition. And so the, the tax collector comes and he says, I, I got nothing. I'm not what you're looking for, God. I'm just asking you for mercy. So he has repentance. That's what the Bible calls repentance. He's, he's turning away from sin. He's agreeing with God about sin. The other thing he has is faith. He just comes to God in simple repentance and faith uh, because he's looking to God. You know, it's not like he just says, oh, I'm a sinner, and then he goes and lays in a hole. But he has faith that God is the kind of God who forgives sinners. So the two things he has for him is repentance and faith. He comes with empty, dirty hands and he trusts that God is the kind of God who can save sinners. That's all he brings to the table, which is nothing. You know, what is that? It's just saying, God, you're the one who can do it if you want to. And I just want to tell you, no matter what your, your issues are, no matter how filthy you are, the God we worship is a God who forgives and restores. He is a God who gives mercy. He's a God of grace. And so you can come to Him with your darkest, you know, most heinous stuff. And you can come with your most dark questions and doubts and you can just put them on the table before God and be completely honest about them and say, God, this is who I am. I am a, a, a sinner. And Lord, I need Your mercy. I need You, simply because You choose to, to be gracious and forgiving to me. That's the way of mercy. And how does God respond when a person repents and puts their faith in Jesus and in God? Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, in other words, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Oh, that's a good word, justified. That is a, that's like a juicy steak, that word justified. Martin Luther said that justification is the doctrine on which the whole church rises or falls. John Calvin said that justification is the doctrine, is the hinge on which the whole of Christianity turns. Uh, I believe J.I. Packer said that justification is like Atlas holding up the world. So justification holds up the entirety of our Christian faith. What is justification? Justification means, it's a legal word, it's a courtroom word, and it means that God declares or pronounces us not guilty. That God pronounces us just and innocent and law keepers. He slams down his gavel and he says, Jeremy is a law keeper. That's what it means to be justified. It's something that's declared about you in God's uh, court of law. <clears throat> And so here, this, this sinner is justified. Now, what did the tax collector do to gain justification? Nothing. I mean, he repented, but that wasn't something. That was just like saying, look at me, I'm a sinner. I mean, it's not like something that he merited. He, he didn't do anything. It came completely from God. God justified him without him doing anything. So he didn't work for it. He didn't go into a system of self discovery and self-help. He didn't uh, you know, do a series of penance. He didn't say, okay, if I listen to 20 of Jeremy's sermons, then that'll make up for these things I did over here. He just said, you know, God said you're justified. And not only did uh, he not have to do anything for it, notice also that he received it completely. He went home justified. 
Uh, And this is even more clear in the Greek because, you know, this is our English Bible, but the original New Testament was written in Greek. In Greek, it's literally, he went home having been justified. So, in other words, justification is something that happens. Either you are justified or you're not. It's either true about, you're either right before God, you're right with God, or you're not right with God. There's no, like, process in between. It's not like, well, I'm 67% justified. And if I do this, I'll get to 68%. It's not like a video game where you're gaining levels or something like that. It's just, you know, you either are just or you're not just before God. It's, it's something that happens instantaneously. It's not like if you do certain things, you can progressively become more acceptable to God. It's not like if you die, there's a purgatory where your, your sins are burned out of you and so you become progressively more just. You either are just or you're not just. And, and it's either declared about you or it isn't. You're either saved or you're not saved. And that's just biblical, very common biblical language. Which then raises a question. How is it that this tax collector could be declared just? If he didn't do anything, and, and now he's just, I mean, what did, how did that take place? How could God look at this filthy guy and say, innocent, not guilty, you're just? And stepping back from this text and looking at the message of of the New Testament, the answer is that God has provided a righteousness outside of the tax collector for him. It is the righteousness of Jesus. That Jesus not only forgives our sins, but Jesus' righteousness is credited to me. So when God looks at sinful Jeremy, what he sees is he sees Jesus covering Jeremy. I am just because of what Christ did for me, not because of who I am. I am just because Christ forgives me. And so He sees me in Jesus. And He sees me as a law keeper, as a holy child. See, there is a way of merit, by the way. There's one guy who actually followed the way of merit. His name was Jesus. He kept all the rules. He lived the life that none of us could live. And so it is the merit of Jesus that is reckoned to my account. And it is my sin that is reckoned to Christ on the cross. And so I am just before God. I can stand before you and say, I'm a saint. You can call me St. Jeremy. Because that's what the Bible calls me. Christians in the Bible are called... Saints are not some higher level of being. They're just Christians. And the word saint just means holy one. That's how Christians are referred to in the Bible. They're all called saints. I'm a saint. I'm a holy one. Why? Because of Jesus, not because of me. And so what is your righteousness before God? Are you taking the way of merit or are you taking the way of mercy? There's a great question. Some of you have heard it before, but I love this question because it's like one of those questions like this text that just kind of like gets to the heart of it. Here's the question. You've probably heard it before. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to say to you, why should I let you into this heaven, this righteous, wonderful place? what would you say? And the way of merit would say, well, God, I'm not perfect, but I did do this, and I was a member of that church for 40 years, and I did uh, you know, serve in the Red Cross, and I was a social worker and helped a lot of people, or I was a pastor, or I, whatever. Whatever you throw out there that you're boasting in, your education, your hard work ethic, your charity, whatever, that's the way of merit. And God's like, are you going to compare your flimsy one, two, three good deeds to my holiness? (laughs) No, no, you don't get in. But if we come to God and say, God, 
I don't deserve to go in, but Jesus died for me. Jesus is my righteousness. Then he says, enter in, because now I have a righteousness that qualifies me to know God. And so where is your salvation? Is it in you or is it in Jesus? There are two ways. Choose the way of mercy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that You are the one who successfully obeyed God and our hope is in You. Our joy is in You. And we thank You that You save us, You forgive us, that we're just in You. And that that being just in You and that love for You propels us to obey You. Not out of a sense of trying to prove anything, but out of a sense of joy and love and and rejoicing. God, I pray for, for anyone here, for all of us here, that we would examine our hearts that, Lord, You would shine a flashlight onto our souls and help us to assess ourselves. Are we boasting in our own righteousness or good deeds or whatever? Or, Lord, have we put our trust in Christ alone for His justification in in us? And so, Lord, I pray that You would show that to us. And if we find, Lord, that we have never put the weight of our trust in Jesus, would You give us the faith to do that? And, Lord, I pray for those of us who have come to Christ that we would just come back to the basics of the Gospel. That we would put our confidence in You and would not become smug, self-righteous Christians, but that we would be humble and gracious because we know that these two great truths, that I am a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior. And that those two truths would be the, the cornerstone of our faith. And so, Lord, make us a church full of grace, full of the Gospel, full of love and humility. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.